Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Welcome to a new year. If you're listening to this, it's just 2020. This is our first episode of 2020. And I'm so glad to have you here listening where we talk about the art and culture of running an indie record label. Please go back if you're new to us and listen to some of the previous 20 to 30 episodes that we have of other labels that we've talked to. So many great labels. And in the uh, just this past summer, actually, uh, after maybe about 50, 15 or 20 labels, we took a little break and consolidated a lot of that wisdom and and advice that we got from those labels. And we put it into a booklet and you can get that right now at otherrecordlabels.com. You can download that. And that's just a summary of all the tips and tricks and, and interesting, um, philosophies that a lot of these incredible labels have shared with us over the past couple of years. And I want you to get that at otherrecordlabels.com. Today, we are starting off the new year with an incredible label. One of these labels, when I look back uh, at their catalog over the past 25, now 26 years, um, I think, man, these are some huge records in the Americana and folk world that uh, that had a huge impact on me when I was younger and I was... Um, you know, becoming a songwriter and and looking and admiring at a lot of these records. Today, um, we talk with Bloodshot Records, and I'm so excited for you to hear this interview. This was recorded a few months back in in 2019, Um, but what a pleasure and what an honor. This is, I I reach out to a lot of labels, and I've had the privilege of interviewing some uh, labels that I admire, and it's such a cool thing. You, you, you know so much music in your life and you experience so much music and I know a lot of labels but to go to a label's uh, discography on Wikipedia and t- as I'm preparing for this interview and just kind of scrolling through things and being like oh that's these guys like it's such a surreal moment to be like a moment that a uh, record that impacted me you know 15 years ago was something that you had your hand in and and here I am talking to you so that's such a, a cool thing. Well, thank you. And and imagine what saying the sentence, looking up your discography on Wikipedia would have sounded like when we had, when we started. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you didn't have your discography in any like encyclopedia books in the library. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, it, frequently I'm asked uh, like, oh, how have things changed since you started? And when we first started, uh, and we were looking to mail out, you know, flyers for shows or, or the early promo CDs or stuff like that. I would get on the train here and go down to the Harold Washington Library to the uh, they have some, they used to have something called the phone book room. Okay, and and where they had the phone books and the yellow pages from from oh, all man. the cities around the country. And I'd be like, oh, okay, so we have a band going to Lexington, Kentucky. I wonder if there's a record store there. Oh and wow! You go to the phone book and look it up, and then just either cold call them or or send them a package or oh my goodness. something like that. So it's pretty remarkable to think about what you have at your fingertips right now. That's a, I I mean that would make such a cool moment in in like a a, a biopic of your life, but <laughs> where you've got like a, a map of America, like a a physical map of America laid out with a pencil and thumbtacks, and then a hundred. Hundred phone books. Otherwise, extremely drab, drab biopic. (laughs) I'd watch it. Oh, that's really cool. And I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing we talk about. And it's interesting talking to labels. I mean, you guys are is about twenty six years. Is that right? This is our twenty fifth. In fact, okay. uh, I think, you know, because the the whole notion of 
being a label or having an official release date or anything like that was so far out sure. of our brain space when yeah. we started. It was just such a hobby that <laughs> we are right around like exactly 25 years. Oh, no way. This month when the first one came, when the first release came out. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it's kind of interesting. Hello? Oh, yeah. Can you hear me okay? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, no, that's that's actually, uh, that is really interesting. And it's a good point, right? Because nobody thinks in the early 90s, um, okay, we've got to pick a date for our 25th anniversary. <laughs> yeah, the release date was when the CD showed up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I guess it's out. Let's start, uh, you know, sure. talking these around town. And I've said before that my for my label, the birthday would just be the day I registered the domain. Because I have that on record, so yeah. Again, something a something you could... not even uttered when we <laughs> when we started. Well, you could maybe look back in those library records, and whenever you first <laughs> <laughs> signed out that phone book room, what was the? Um, can you t tell me about like we'll go back to it's ninety two, ninety three or so, but back to when everything got started, um, and when you finally said, you know. Holy crow! We're a, we're a record label here. This is happening. <laughs> uh, well, those are two very different questions. Okay. Uh, it was really the, the three original partners. Uh, we were just all music fans. We would see each other at shows all the time, uh, and we we saw this kind of music, this this sonic space that was going completely undocumented, hmm. and we thought, well, let's just put together a compilation of 15, 20 of these bands around town that are playing to like eight people each, mm. you know, 20, <laughs> 20 bands times eight people in the audience. You know, they all have four friends, you know, we might be able to sell 500 of these or something. Wow. And, uh, and it was really just that simple and that naive. Um, the th we didn't really think of ourselves as a label for quite some time, I didn't quit my day job for three or four years into this. Mm. Uh, I remember we had a showcase at CMJ uh, in New York uh, on the Lower East Side before before there was you know Brazilian bowls and mm. and uh, you know uh, 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 boysenberry martini bars and stuff <laughs> like that. A uh, uh, place called Brownies and the old 97s and the Waco brothers played mm. their first New York shows. And we had a line down the block and I saw a couple of writers from Rolling Stone. And wow. And I thought, I thought, Oh, this, this could be something. <laughs> and, and then maybe, maybe a, a year later at, at, uh, or a year and a half at South by Southwest 1997, we had just announced that we were going to put out an Alejandro Escobedo record. Mm -hmm. And, he played a showcase at La Zona Rosa and, and there was, I don't know, 800, 1200 people there. And he came out and, and was introduced as bloodshot records recording artist. <sighs> and I remember looking around, I'm just saying that gives me chills right now. Oh wow! But I was like, Oh shit. Uh, uh, somebody of the caliber <laughs> of Alejandro Escovedo is, is now on our label. This is serious. Unbelievable. <laughs> we're, now, we're now in charge of some significant art here. We need to, we need to we need to sober up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I want to ask you just for a second about this compilation idea because there's a label here in in my town called Sonic Onion Records and they got started in the early 90s as well uh, here in Canada 
and um, and 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 they got started with a compilation. It was the exact same story that you're. I mean, they just they just hit their twenty five this year as well. But um, the the same story with a compilation. And I also talked to Portia at Kill Rock Stars, and she has. Uh-huh. They have a similar story with putting Nirvana on a compilation. I mean, what was that like back then for those those compilations? Um, you, you know, is is that really what helped propel you guys? I, I think it helped establish. Uh, both a sonic and an aesthetic identity. Mm. And for a lot of bands, certainly back then when, when no one was paying attention to what they were doing and, and everyone was just kind of feeling out what they're doing, um, compilations are a inexpensive way to put a bunch of music together. It, it, those, those first compilations would have you know, 50, 60 minutes worth of music on them, hmm. whereas individual bands would almost certainly not have that much music to put on. Yeah, that's a good point. So you, you were able to put out a, a pretty broad spectrum of, of sounds and, and of artists without, you know, having somebody uncomfortably giving you their filler material. Yeah, no, no, that's a good point, which was a big thing back in the 90s. Was yeah, this on... Sorry, was this on CD? Yes, okay. CD, CD only. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, as much as we were figuring things out as a label, I mean, we were just kind of stumbling around in the dark doing things intuitively. The bands were doing that as well, so <laughs> they weren't ready to record a full length. Right, okay, so, yeah. You know, and what we wanted to do, those early compilations, was kind of document a scene that was going on. Mm. And then as we got more established, they just became fun. I mean, they didn't become fun. They were always yeah, yeah. fun. But we were able to do, rather than geographically themed uh, uh, compilations, we did one out of Nashville. We did one you know, nationwide. Mm-hmm. We were able to do thematic ones, like one, the one with, with uh, based, it was called Straight Out of Boone County. It was based on uh, a record label out of, uh, out of Cincinnati, King Records, King the King Federal label from the fifties. Mm. It was all covers from that. We did wow. a Knitters tribute record. You know, we were able to just kind of do some fun stuff where you'd still be able to draw in artists that weren't even necessarily on the label, but that we were fans of, and they were fans of us. So it was yeah, like, you know, right. That's how we got to know Whiskey Town and Ryan Adams and and a whole bunch of other people was. Yeah, they couldn't sign to us or put out a whole record, but they could certainly contribute a, a, a compilation track and get their name out there that way. I find that interesting, and, and that's the same thing I've heard from other labels from this era, is is uh, including bands that weren't on their label on the compilation. That is really cool. Well, I mean, at the heart of it, if you're running an independent label, you're a big music fan. Yeah. So, yeah. so whatever I can do to, you know play with others is you know is is a lot of fun yeah do you miss that format of the compilation album i mean it's almost irrelevant it probably is irrelevant now with playlists but do you you miss that i I really do because it it was a way for us to kind of express ourselves a little bit with Mm. who we were who we would pick for certain projects or or throw an idea at somebody and have them come at us with with something we wouldn't expect Whereas mm-hmm. a full length album, we're we're very much a hands off label. So if if you're putting out an album with us, we're going to let you do what you want. So oh, that's we, cool. We don't particularly have a lot of input 
Whereas a compilation is, yeah, it's like we're we're putting together where our heads are in in that particular time period, right? And, and going listening back through all our compilations, yeah, you can see like, oh, I was really into this band for a while, or this sound, or something like that. And it's, you know, it's interesting, and I mean, I want to you know kind of take us back to what you first started talking about with the the phone books because, I, <laughs> and I want to I want to ask you about this, and I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. But when you got started in the '90s, there were so many barriers for entry. I mean, even uh, even when I was first making my own records in the early 2000s, it cost thousands of dollars to make CDs. And and I, I just remember, you know, back then there was probably so many barriers for entry. So the fact that you were diligent enough to go and ambitious enough to go to the library and look up record stores all across America in the phone books, whereas now, you know, I can do that while we're talking and, and with one hand. And 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 same with when it comes to putting together these compilations, any kid can put together. I mean, how does that feel as a label? I mean, do you welcome the innovation or do you sometimes uh, long for, for the old days when it required <laughs> extremely hard work? I, I'm perfectly fine not having to go down to the library. It was a rather dreary place in February in Chicago. Oh, <laughs> well, that's fair. Um, I mean, yeah, there. You know, I, I I don't ever want to be the guy, you know, waving my cane on my yeah. porch, and you get, get your frisbee off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, there there's obvious benefits to to all this, but the one the one thing I will say about what this ease of technology has done is, I think it has cheapened the idea of art. Mm, agreed. The, the democratization of access hmm. you know not everyone has something interesting to say sadly enough and i think that when people are able to do whatever they want in whatever manner that it, it kind of it kind of cheapens the whole endeavor in a way mm -hmm. uh, the fact that i can go online right now and have access to every piece of recorded music you know, yeah. what what does that say about me and my journey mm -hmm. um, on this planet? Uh, you know, but on the other hand, you know, if you're a kid in Fargo, North Dakota, or some shitty small town, can I swear on this thing? Yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's okay. I should have asked that before. I'll have to put the little explicit tag on your episode, but no problem. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it down. I'll keep it down. Um, some uh, grubby little town. <laughs> it doesn't have a record store. You know, I yeah, mean, I, yeah. I was lucky enough, you know, through through being when when I was a kid and going through college and and then moving to Chicago that there were I always had access to weird, interesting record stores. Mm. Not everyone does, but now those kids who may feel totally left out and alone in the world now have a portal yeah. to finding people who will help them realize that there is not just one way to look at the world. And it's just, yeah. And no, that, that is unbelievably invaluable, despite, despite what this country has done in our electrical process. <laughs> yeah. Is there, is it, is it a, um, you know, I, I wonder if, uh, I remember, I remember in high school, I was in high school in the nineties. I remember if a band had a CD, then there, they were a really, really big deal and, and they were legitimate. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I see the upsides, uh, there's huge upsides. Um, but I, I do see the issue of everyone can now make a release no matter what. And there is no, um, 
you know, and I wonder if it's I wonder if it's vinyl is maybe now the new uh, kind of barrier that when something is not everything is pressed to vinyl. Yeah, I, th- I also think that there is a, a certain lack of mystery anymore, or that mm. there's a lack of discovery. Like mm-hmm. maybe you'll read something on a website or a blog or something, and it'll it'll be talking about this great band that somebody just saw, and you'll click on the link and be able to hear all the stuff they've recorded, and then kind of make a, an instantaneous decision and be like, oh yeah, that was pretty cool, and then. <laughs> not really think about it. Whereas, you know, when I'm spending months trying to dig up a particular weird punk rock record, you're going to, you're going to have a bit more of an attachment. Oh, to for it. sure. Yeah. I, I read in uh, Jeff Tweedy's book, um, the one that came out last year, he, it's something that just blew me away um, where he would read about an album from a magazine and then he would decide on which album to buy from the description of the reviewer. And then, oh, yeah. and then mail away for that record. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, I, and, you know, being in the punk rock scene in Detroit in the uh, early 80s, you know, we'd hear about bands, and you'd, but you'd never heard them. Or maybe one guy you knew, like four suburbs over, <laughs> yeah. had, gotten, had gotten the seven inch. Uh, but they, they would come into the, hey, sorry, I'm doing an interview right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so like somebody like the misfits would come through town and we had heard, like, there was this rumor going through town that like a few days before some kid was stage diving and one of the guitar players didn't like that and broke his arm, like beating him with his guitar. And, and it's like, so, so there's this rumor and then, you know, this excitement and, and whether or not it was true, nobody knows, but it's like still nothing that you could verify. Yeah. It's like mis- that's mystery. Right. And, mystery. And, yeah. And, <laughs> and then or you'd hear about this great band and you'd see their flyer and then you would go and you'd maybe you'd hate them but maybe they would just be unbelievable but the anticipation for weeks of like god what is this going to be like yeah now you can be like what is this going to be like and eight seconds later no oh yeah i know i know i know yeah <laughs> there's a, it's and, and i also think that it's got to be tough to be a band or a label like starting off right now because everything you do is so overly documented how can you develop a sound or how can you try things and fail without it being documented mm-hmm. and commented upon exhaustively mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's it's that was what was so great about being in chicago was there were so many stages so many different clubs and so many bands that were allowed on these stages that people could just try stuff mm-hmm. without fear of failure or without an expectation of necessarily succeeding, but without, you know, people judging it too harshly. Yeah. Right. It didn't work. work. They could try something else the next week. Uh, It's, it's almost like what I, what I've heard that it still exists today for comedians where they can go to a super tiny club and try out material, then completely abandon it. And somehow it's not as digitized as, as music has become. Right. Right. And to go back to your, your, your vinyl point, I think that, you know, yeah, I can have 47,000 songs on my hard drive and have my Spotify playlists up and down, but, you know, who cares? And I think that there is a longing for some sort of uh, totemic connection to mm. the band and the art, and, you know, and vinyl speaks to that. They can they can hold it, they can look at the liner notes, There, are, there are, it, it's something that is exists 
in that moment, but also beyond that moment. Whereas everything else is just, it just seems so ephemeral. It's such a, I totally agree. And, and, and it, it, this might sound weird to some people, but I, it is such an intimate experience to think, especially from indie music, when I get a record in the mail, just to think that, you know, they've had their hands on this, you know, likely, or it, it just feels like it's a, it's a really personal connection to them as opposed to just streaming something off of another website. Yeah. Or, or, like going, going, going to your your Spotify or your Pandora account or whatever. I'm going. I'm in. I'm sad with yeah. my sad playlist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm mad with <laughs> my sad playlist. Um, speaking, <laughs> speaking of the big bad digital's, uh, what was the music scene like in the early '90s? I imagine it was it was kind of or in the mid '90s. It was. I imagine it was a bit of a heyday because Napster was a, still a few years away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people had to pay for music. And when there is money involved, the people who have a lot of it want more of it. So all the major labels decided to just keep treating their customers like suckers. So they mm -hmm. kept raising the prices of CDs, mm -hmm. made it harder and harder to, you couldn't buy them at shows. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, they clamped down on that. And then so all of a sudden you have like 1998 CD list prices in stores so they helped create an environment that when the technology came along to rip off the record labels why wouldn't people right and when napster first started hitting and and the major labels and some of the big stars were complaining about lost income i remember don henley going to capitol hill uh to testify against Congress and complain about how much money he was losing. And there I was as a, as an independent record label going, well, if it's pissing Don Henley off, then I'm all for it. You know, <laughs> even, even though it's like kind of biting, you know, biting sure. my nose, despite my face, it's like, oh, well, you know, if, if Don Henley is getting hurt by this, then it can't be all bad. <laughs> and it just, it, just seemed, it just seemed like, yeah, they, the, the heyday, the gold rush of, of that CD era just helped fuel this enormous backlash where, where the law and the unintended consequences, it took a long time to catch up how with are, the technology. How are you guys being different? How are you treating your customers differently than the, these big labels who are repackaging records or, um, uh, or putting filler songs on... Uh, I think it all starts with the premise that we're not putting out garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, we all we always resisted pressure from our distributors and from from stores to raise our prices. We try and keep things affordable. We try and keep things simple. You know, we don't keep repackaging things. We don't. Yeah, it, it just, and we don't put out crap. I mean, you know, you just try and you treat them like you want to be treated. Mm. We're music fans. You want to treat them like a music fan. You don't want to treat them like some, like we're grabbing them by the ankles and holding them upside down and shaking all the money out of them. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, so were you, you were aware of, um, that, uh, that goal to stay that with that indie ethos back then, even in the nineties, like, were you ever tempted to try to sign a hit single or something like that? <laughs> I, I, I don't think, any of us have that in our DNA. That's great. <laughs> it's not like we're intentionally trying to fail yeah. <laughs> or, or not be huge. But, right. You know, I, 
I, I have a, I've, I've got Groucho Marx syndrome. I'm, I, I'm not keen to be, to join a club that would have me as a member, you know, and, <laughs> and, and popular culture in general just kind of makes me stand back with a, with a jaundiced eye. Uh, <laughs> so if all of a sudden I'm in a room with 5,000 people who are going crazy over something, I'm going to be standing in the back going, yeah, I don't trust this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the origins of the, of the label in in that country and roots genre. Can you describe that a little bit? Because I mean, obviously, what what some people would think of back then, you know, as new country, is completely different from the alt country of of Whiskey Town and early Wilco. Um, there was something more punkish about it. How did that genre come to be the early sound of Bloodshot? Well, it goes back to where what we were doing at that time. Uh, I mean. Uh, Again, the, the three founders all had huge, rec- huge and varied record collections. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was happening in Chicago at the time was it was being looked at as the post-Seattle next big thing. Oh, and okay. With bands like Smashing Pumpkins and Urge Overkill and Liz Fair and a whole bunch of others, there was there was this kind of indie rock thing that was happening here that. To me, in a lot of ways, and a lot of the bands, uh, was striking me as just like, it just not very interesting. And mm-hmm. then I would be going to the clubs uh, and seeing these bands that were doing weird things with, with Roots music, and there, there seemed to be a lot of them around town. Hmm. And we just thought, okay, let's, uh, let's put these all together and see what happens. Let's let's document this part of the Chicago scene that is going totally unnoticed. Right. And as soon as we put that out, we started to hear from fans in St. Louis and Dallas and New York and the Bay Area and Denver, Phoenix. They were like, hey, we've got a couple of bands like this, too. Right. And I think I can only speak for myself in a, in a way, but having grown up in the punk scene and then seeing it commodified through Lollapalooza and, you know, Martha Stewart grunge themed parties and things like that. It just seemed like this thing that I, I held dear was now just becoming the next thing. And that the people who used to beat the crap out of me in high school were like, Oh yeah, man, have you heard the new flipper album? And I'd be like, Oh God. And you ago, you were beating the snot out of me for listening to flipper. Um, how did so, Chicago get a root sound? How did Chicago get that s- almost Southern sound? Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's a, the, a long conversation for okay. another day. I, <laughs> but so I, so I would say that a lot of, a lot of people in the punk scenes were getting tired of like seeing this thing that they was kind of a secret club for them turning into this, this mainstream thing. And, you know what? What's more punk than Johnny Cash singing "I Shot a Man in Reno" just to watch him die? Yeah. Uh, you know, so all of a sudden, a lot of people were kind of finding this this the rawness and the immediacy and the connection to the audience that they that they originally found in punk, and they were finding it in in early country music and mm. honky tonk, and and I think. The fact that Chicago was in the center of the country and any indie band who was, who was doing any kind of national tour would come through Chicago and you would get bands like the Bad Livers or 
the blasters or, you know, uh, Charlie Pickett or, or things like that, that would kind of spread these little seeds of, uh, of like roots awareness. And then people would pick up on it. Like, I didn't know that the cramps were covering all these weird old mm. dudes, you know, from the fifties. I just thought it was their stuff. And then it wasn't until later that I started to dig into their catalog. And so then you started to go back and, and I think it was just this moment in, looking again, you know, you're in your mid to late twenties, you're too tired to roll over police cars in some sort of riot, but you still don't feel like you're part of the mainstream. So all of a sudden you're listening to Hank Williams all the time or Patsy Cline or look, you know, I like how amazing Loretta Lynn was with her social commentary and stuff. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. Johnny paycheck with pardon me, I've, I've got someone to kill. You're mm-hmm. like, Holy shit, this is amazing punk rock stuff. Well, decades before punk rock existed. Right. Yes, that, that's right and they and they were all coming from a place of, of integrity too. And and I I because they were like for someone like Johnny Cash when when he um when he and so I, I wanted to ask you. You had mentioned Johnny Cash. Was was this around the time of like that of his like final era with Rick Rubin, like late nineties? Is yeah, I think uh, I think his first fan, the fan base that really discovered him in that in that last leg of his journey, I guess, yeah. were the people who were coming at him from from indie rock and underground circles. I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence that his his rediscovered popularity initially came through Rick Rubin and American Recordings and mm-hmm. he was playing like rock clubs, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's like half a dozen years before that he was playing to half empty band shells at, at county fairs. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Or, or like uh, Pennsylvania bus tours or something. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the mainstream country establishment had turned their backs on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And I, I'm, I'm fascinated because I, I got into, I got into that genre a lot. I mean, I was really, and I think it was probably Johnny Cash. And I remember when they had that unearth box set and, and yeah. I, I really got into that and lost highway records. This was around the same time. And I, I just remember kind of scooping all of that up. And, and I, I, I think like, was that genre? Tell me your experience with that, because there was a time and maybe I'm just biased, but I feel like there was a time where the mainstream started to accept it. I mean, specifically around the, Oh brother, where art thou? Soundtrack time that that the mainstream was starting to to uh, accept Americana a little bit. Did, did that happen? I, I you know every every few years there's going to be a record where the 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 people who have a, a a deep vested interest in the music industry writ large, you know that, that have bonuses and corner offices mm-hmm. and and island vacations and stuff like yeah. that. that see something like that they see the old brother thing and and they're like okay let's let's run this into the ground yeah let's, that's let's right ride this horse till it drops and we had our you know we had done a bunch of, of weird blue grassy things before that and then all of a sudden our our distributor and and writers are like so uh you must be getting quite a bump from this bluegrass revival and i'm like oh my god <laughs> So every, you know, when, when Gillian Welch and David Rawlings came out with their, their first, sure, yeah, around 2000, uh, you know, everyone was like, oh yeah, yeah, the mainstream is ready for this, you know, mm-hmm. so they start to smell money around it and then they'll take a few artists like, you know, maybe the Jayhawks or Whiskey Town or something and try and make pop stars out of them right. or, or, or 
broader country stars and it and it doesn't work and then they'll they'll go around and sniff around another hydrant until they think they'll find some money somewhere else <laughs> yeah no that's a good point yeah that is a good point were you guys pressing vinyl the whole time uh, or, or when did uh, how did that uh, we, we would license out things because there was really zero vinyl market yeah and, yeah i'm curious about uh, that they are expensive and we were you know existing on the margins uh you know for the first few years we wouldn't really put out another record till the last one made its money back right you know it's, it, we didn't you know none of us none of us were drawing a salary we were all we all kept our day job so it was it was just prohibitively expensive and Really, no one was buying it because everyone was still like enamored with this fantastic new CD technology. And right. Everyone was box setting everything, and everyone was putting like sixty or you know seventy one and a half minutes worth of music on every CD. Yeah. And just every, <laughs> That's right. Every little piece of plastic they could on there. So uh, there was no market for it. I, even even though, yeah, no, that's true. But I always felt like the the roots. Um, and country genre was one of the earliest uh, for the just because it sounded so great on vinyl. Well, yeah, it was you know, it, it indisputably sounds better mm -hmm. and warmer and more personal. But you know, as as uh, any drive-through McDonald's will attest, <laughs> uh, convenience yeah, <laughs> convenience right. outweighs a lot of things. A yeah, lot, most no, of it. it's great. No, I totally agree. W was there? So what? At what point did the the vinyl boom happen enough for you guys to say every record is is getting a vinyl release? I, I would say about two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Some right. of our bigger releases, we would have a a, a limited vinyl component to it, and mm. then it just kept growing. And to to the point now where we're we're actually planning on some releases this fall that will have no CD component. Wow, you know, so yeah. it's. it's it's flipped entirely. I, when I was a, a DJ on my college radio station, some of the promos I was getting would be the early CDs and they would have bonus tracks. Oh, wow. And now and to, to get people away from buying the LP because yeah, LPs true. are temporal, more expensive to make, more expensive to ship, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're seeing some people actually putting bonus tracks back on CDs to try and get people to go back to maybe buying some CDs. <laughs> um, okay, so looking at your catalog, and I, I mean, I said this at the beginning, that really took me back. There's some incredible records. I've, I was a huge fan, still am, of the Ben Queller stuff. I mean, I love the records that he's done, and Heartbreaker obviously was huge in Whiskey Town. Is there any specific releases that had a significant impact on the label in your mind? Uh, in, in in what way financially or I, I mean I suppose well you I mean however answer that however you think I mean I, I suppose financially would have a, a don't significant don't ask me to be a bad parent and pick one child <laughs> over another <laughs> I love them all equally <laughs> was was there any that that felt like a turning point well I think uh, well I mean certainly heartbreaker put us in a position where it was terrifying when it first started to hit hmm. uh, because it was on a scale of, of nothing that we had ever seen before and nothing that we were prepared for. So I'm calling up the CD manufacturer going, uh, yeah, you know how I usually order like CDs 
5,000 or 1,000 at a time. I need 50,000 of these. Oh, my gosh. And, and they're like, okay, can you pay for those? And we'd be like, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so. What made that record tip? I don't really remember it when it came out. I, it was just, he, it was, it was lightning in a bottle. It was like, it was just his, his abilities and the, the marketplace at the time. Right. It was, everything was right there. Right. And it, in some ways it was so effortless what? And, and looking back, it just seems so natural. But, uh, as coincidentally, I, we, we had a flood in our basement here a few months ago, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And I've been going through all these boxes that were down there and I'm finding all these like purchase orders and invoices from that time period. Mm-hmm. And it brought back the flood of anxiety of like, Oh my God, we've, this is, this is serious. Like we had no idea. Like I, I'd be looking at, like one invoice that was for, you know, or a purchase order for like, oh, we need 10,000. And then like two weeks later, be like, I need 40,000. And then oh, three man. weeks later, it's like, I need 10, you know, tens of thousands more. And, wow. and it was just crazy. So you weren't enjoying it? You weren't c- celebrating it? I, I'm enjoying it. I was enjoying it in retrospect, but in the moment, yeah, it was, it was rather terrifying. Yeah. And unbelievable. It's just how... Yeah, we didn't have any idea what to do with it. Uh, obviously, I mean, in hindsight, it's twenty twenty, and 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 that's a great record. Um, and there's talent there, obviously. But what were you guys doing um, to promote that record? I mean, you must have been responsible for some of its success. Uh, I, I'm I'm not one that particularly can take compliments or credit for much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think a lot of our work on that record was the buildup to it. Mm-hmm. Like our association with, with Ryan and whiskey town before that with compilations and singles and, and helping define perhaps a little of what the genre was and making the marketplace ready for that record. But really when it came out, mostly our job was to just keep up. Right. It was, it took on a life of its own. It was already, it was already kind of breaking right yeah, on the releasing. Burn. I mean, it was our, our initial sales hopes were 10 to 20,000. Hmm. And, and we quickly, you know, within a two or three months, it was like, okay, this is, this is huge or it's, or it's getting, it's getting a lot of traction. Um, but it, I mean, the, the sales for that thing didn't crest for like, six or eight months so we just kept building and kept building and yeah the release tour show in chicago was at a club called shubas with which holds about 150 people oh wow so it 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 wasn't right out of the gate we knew what we had but it was this it was this this cresting tide (laughs) what was there um was there a certain publication that that you guys would turn to or that you would aspire to be covered by back then no, because I, I, I guess, no, it wasn't a conscious decision not to do that. I mean, when you okay. read history, sub pop and stuff like that, like they, they tried to get whoever from the UK press over or something like that. I guess maybe we weren't smart enough to think. In <laughs> I mean, we're just so deeply ingrained in, in grassroots kind of trench warfare mm-hmm. that thinking about pitching it to the places that eventually did pick up on it, like, you know, the Rolling Stones and New York times and Mojo's and, and, and guardian and all, and all those really high up media outlets, they came to us. Mm. So 
Wow. After the fact. Yeah. So how did that, how did that record, what was the next release after that? Not by, not by Ryan, but, but from, from Bloodshot. And, and did you have any sort of confidence or did you have a bigger budget for the next uh, release on, on your label? Um, well, I, I, I don't know specifically, but just judging by the catalog numbers, I would say that one of the first releases after that was, uh, you know, we, we like to do stupid things and we like to do things that entertain us. So I think our next record was a, an anti-death penalty song. Okay. <laughs> a, a compilation with people doing uh, death uh, murder ballads to raise money for the Illinois Coalition to abolish the death penalty. Um, oh, and again, it wasn't a plan. You can't plan for Ryan to be huge. Yes. Um, but what a record like that, or like when Nico Case started to hit, mm -hmm. or or Alejandro, or Justin Towns Earl, mm -hmm. um, what you what we did with that is we look at this whole endeavor as a, a rising tide lifts all boats. That it allows us to first of all put money away for a rainy day because we don't always have records doing well, right? Um, but also it allows us to take some more risks with bands that we we believe in and want to invest in long term so mm. you know justin town earl records help pay for early lydia loveless records mm. and nico case records help pay for kelly hogan or scott byram or you know robbie folks records you know it, it yeah. everything everything informs something else no that's a good point and i, and I think that's a beautiful I thing too part of our success our, our nominal success or our, our tenacity or freakishly good luck on staying in business is that we've never bought into the uh boom or bust mentality hmm. that okay now that ryan's doing really big everything we do from now on needs to be really big we need to hire more staff we need to get another office etc cetera, etc cetera. we wanted to stay very within our means to be able to support a lot of the oddball music that we will always love stuff that will never sell that much but we think generally speaking the world is a poorer place if they don't get to hear it yeah <laughs> so it, it allows us to not make money on certain things uh, there's there's you know we've talked about the iconic artists what goes in today to to seeking out and signing some new undiscovered acts um under that under that banner of uh of weird music and of uh you know outside the box artists I'm sorry. What was, what was the so? So you're still signing the new artists today? Like, what goes into searching out and, and finding these new artists? Uh, in a lot of ways, it is as simple and naive a premise as it was when we started. We're still big music fans, and mm. if we really like something, we will figure out a way to make it work. Hmm. If they can't tour very often, then you know it all that all goes into the calculus of of how much money you spend on promotion and how much to record it and and hopefully it will find its audience mm. when when uh, our uh, recent artist who's doing very well right now Sarah Shook and the Disarmers when we first approached them cuz I could not stop listening to their self-released album <laughs> they you know she said I'm a single mom I can't go out there a lot and I'm like I get that let's figure out a way to do this that's awesome and we got the record out there and it started to find its audience pretty quickly and got some great write-ups. And she started to get more opportunities, which allowed her to get away from home more. And, and, and thus far this year, they've just been touring 
enormously, way more wow. than any thought. And that's because we didn't, you know, lay down this gauntlet of, well, yeah. you, know, you have to do this or we can't work with you. If, I mean, three or four years ago, we put out a record by a female Danish pedal steel player. I mean, that's exactly the opposite of what the marketplace is looking for. But I love that record. And we figured out a way to do it that, you know, if it, it, it may not have made money, but it certainly didn't lose money. And I'm proud to have it in the catalog. And yeah. I listen to it a lot. So, yeah. That's that's funny. I actually have I, I have a, a couple EPs that I've done with a, a pedal steel player. They're ambient uh, pedal steel music and 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 dobro. And it's just one of those things where it's like this is meaningful for me. This is a companion to my life, and I'm going to put it out and I'm going to spend money on on physical. And if it doesn't make money, that's okay. <laughs> it's yeah, for me. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, she's done a couple of gorgeous records for us, Maggie Bjorklund, and. Uh, you know, not a household name, but I mean, why sure. do this if you can't do stuff you love? If all of a sudden you're just looking at sales figures and like, okay, that record did really well, or what's doing really well in the marketplace right now? It, oh, we need to find a clone of that. Yeah, all it's right. Never, it's never gone into our thinking. It, it really is just as simple and perhaps simple-minded. <laughs> <laughs> you as, weren't. Uh, you weren't any in any way tempted to look for another heartbreaker right after that to sign more. I wouldn't know the first. I mean, that's, that's, that's an insane, an, an insane and disingenuous proposition. <laughs> it's not. I mean, that's not fair to anyone, right? To look at this this way, hmm. or to, to look at it that way. I mean, I you know, because looking at the first heartbreaker, you had no idea. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And there are there are a handful of records in our catalog that I listen to and I go, how is this not huge? Yeah. 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 And, and so, there, there's so many variables and the music industry is many things, but it is not a meritocracy. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. that's right. That's right. Oh my gosh. The, it, it, basically the best way to replicate success is just to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. When we, when we first started in the old 97 started to do well, uh, we signed Robbie folks and put out his first record country love songs. Mm. And we immediately started getting people saying, well, that doesn't sound like a bloodshot release. What are you doing? Hmm. And there, there was this, there's always going to be the certain segment of, of listeners who want you to just keep putting out the same old 97s record over yeah. and over yeah. and over again. And when we signed Nico case, they were like, well, that doesn't sound like a bloodshot artist. Huh. And, and it just goes on and on. And you're like, well, then I don't know what to tell you because yeah. they're on the label. So therefore they are by yeah. a definition, a bloodshot artist. And sometimes we try things and we fail, but again, we try and do it in a way that doesn't drag the whole label down into a smoldering ruin. I mean, we've seen over the years, so many labels over expand or, or try and go beyond their grasp or, or sell out or something. And then they just disappear and that doesn't help anyone here. Mm. So I think artists trust us that we're not going to do something ridiculous. Like, okay, here's something starting to do well. Let's start putting all our money behind it and try and make everyone sound like that or try and follow that, that lead that is so out of your control. Mm. There uh, I was going to, yeah, go ahead. No, keep going. There were times certainly, you know, when, when uh, a lot of this stuff first started to hit and everyone thought, Oh, okay, this is going to go mainstream. This is going to be, mm. 
you know, Wilco is going to be the next Nirvana or something, yeah. something ridiculous like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, we, we had, we had a label guy fly here from one of the, one of the company towns, Nashville, <laughs> LA or, or Nashville, uh, Nashville, New York or LA. I right. won't say which one okay. flew here, got in a limo from the airport, came straight here with, with his assistant, came into our, our office slash conference room, which is a, like a, 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 a garbage picked coffee table and a sofa that, if it could talk, would scream, you know, <laughs> old and filthy, um, and made small talk for five minutes. And then he, uh, he wrote something on a piece of paper and slid it over to me. And it was a number. And it was a, a, a buyout offer. And I was like, no. this this really happens? This kind of stuff happens? Oh, my goodness. And I looked at him. And I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, Ian McKay from Discord. I, you know, I do have a price, but this isn't it. Yeah. <laughs> so he like made a couple more small talk things. And then he got back in his limo and, and went back to the airport and flew back. Oh, man. And, you know, I was just like, I didn't get into this to work for other people. Yeah, sure. Or to, or you know, to, to be an A and R hack for, for something bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, why there, there's a lot of other easy, easier ways to make money than to, to be an indie label. So if you don't love what you do, why yeah, do it? Yeah, exactly. If, I, if I can't honestly stand in a, at a show and be into what's going on, then why don't I just go sell toothbrushes or something? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, that, that's uh, that guy really had a cliche playbook. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It was like a movie. Shaking our heads afterwards, like, oh my God, that shit really happened. Yeah, (laughs) that's a great... And and I know labels back then that took that piece of paper, and they're gone now. Right. And the artists that they believed in when they started are, I don't know where. Right, right. There was an interview with you, and I want to talk about the economics of things a little bit, uh, a few years back that I read. And the, and the piece talked about trying to educate the audience on the basic economics of running a label and being an artist. And this is something actually that I've talked about with other labels because it's easy to blame, you know, these these guys in the in the limos or Apple or Spotify or Walmart. Um, but it's important to understand for us that the average music fan has no idea what it costs to record or master or press a record, um, let alone have money left over to pay rent. Can a label do anything today to make music and artists more valued in society with, without sounding too preachy? Well, that's, that's the, uh, that's (laughs) that's the one question I was hoping you had the answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You just have to make people aware of what a valuable contribution they are. I mean, let's face it, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, those, those people have never produced a note of music. Right. Um, and they provide a service. Sure. But at what cost? And I just feel like, uh, we're in an environment where there is a hyper, there is a growing awareness of the value of locality of, of small business and you, and of, of, of knowing the sources and all that. Like people want, you know, the, the, the joke is people want to know the name of the chicken that they're eating. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and people are are into locally crafted beer and spirits and the farmers markets and and clothes and mm-hmm, all that. Mm-hmm. It just seems like that hasn't translated into music. That people are just 100%. there's now an entire 
now an entire generation of people that have had the entirety of recorded history at their fingertips for virtually nothing. Mm. So how do you how do you explain to them that okay you love this band streaming them on your your digital service provider does not help them make a living. Mm. Um, th- these are bands that are not going to be on Lollapalooza's stage. They're not going to be at the big festivals. How do you support them? Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you make the conscious decision to not do that, or or you think that going there and buying a T-shirt whenever they're in town somehow helps, then you're really ignoring the reality of it. Uh, and and that's all you can do is and and, and we have. We fortunately have a, a a very loyal core fan base that will that allows us some breathing room to try some more interesting things or try out new artists, knowing that they will support them. Mm-hmm. To agree that it it won't be a catastrophe if right. if, if it doesn't sell, but to, to get out into the broader world, yeah, it's like you get so many people who are like, oh, you know, like you know. Send me, send me a record. Give me free downloads, and I'll and I'll tag it on my Instagram feed. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't care. That doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know. I mean, so, so the broader issue is it goes well beyond, you know, the 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 travails of a, of a middling independent label such as ourselves. It speaks to the broader issue of as a society, how do we value art? Mm-hmm. Be it. Is it be it writing, be it photography, film, whatever? All these things are available for free all over the place, and it and that is, is kind of cheapening again, kind of cheapening the entire endeavor. You know, friends who are photographers can't get work because, yeah, you know, a magazine will just pull something off of someone's yeah, oh yeah, and yeah, you know. So is that picture better? No, but it's free. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and I mean. You know, it's interesting you talk about the the local aspect, and and it, it just feels like somehow art and, and specifically music has slipped through the the cracks of of this pursuit of of localizing everything. I mean, there's a cafe around the corner that sells baked goods from a local uh, bakery. It's the the beans are are locally roasted. Um, there's flowers from uh, a gardener for sale there, but then the music is just Spotify. It's just yeah. you know. Absolutely, and I'm it's very interesting. It's 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 great, and it's an amazing source of creativity, and it and it makes communities more interesting. And the the area I live in, Chicago, it's like totally self contained. I don't ever have to leave this neighborhood. Yeah, so many interesting things going on. So why will that person who is willing to pay eighteen dollars for a basil infused vodka with fresh raspberries <laughs> from down the street with ice cubes made from? some cast iron thingy that a, a local guy made to make yeah. special cubes. Why do, why are they offended to pay more than like one, one billionth of a penny for a song that they really yeah. like? Yeah. Or, or, <laughs> or is anybody committing to just listening to music within a 20 mile radius? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, again, Interesting. We've been lucky in Chicago or being in Chicago. I don't think we would have, we would have survived in any other place. Hmm. Uh, because the the local community does seem to have a certain amount of pride and civic awareness of having a label like us exist here and being part of the community, and we try and be a good member of the community, and you know, lots of lots of shows and festivals and fundraisers and stuff like that, and and so 
we, we do have a base of support here and an awareness that we are a Chicago label. But yeah, it's, it's tough. And that's all you can do is help people realize that being out on the road, being away from your family, being away from a real job is tough enough as it is to not get paid for it. You know, mm. a lot of bands are just throwing in the towel or, you know, we've had to pass on a lot of projects and, mm. and consider that those are albums. That's art that hasn't been created. Yeah, that's right. There are voices that are lost in a way because there's no viable model to, to get them out there. Are you, are you still optimistic? Yeah. Anyone who knows me will tell you that I am a, an unrepentant curmudgeon. (laughs) (laughs) However, you do not run a independent (laughs) without being at your core a total optimist that every day you come in here, you believe what you do. You think that this record, this record by this, this artist, people are going to be way into and five years from now, they're going to be a lot bigger and you're a part of that. Mm. And, and you believe, you believe that it has value. So yeah, there are so many reasons to just, you know, find a bucket of gasoline and throw a match at it in the office here, but you, you, you believe it. You know, so does the 25 years make you more temperate? Can you can can these changing eras slide off your back a little more? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not nearly as uh, the highs aren't as high, but the low, <laughs> certainly not as low. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more much more. Uh, oh, OK, I, I've seen I've seen somebody screw up that badly before. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I don't want to take we've, too too much. We've been screwed over by better people. yeah that's right i don't want to take any more of your time but i wanted to ask you something specifically you know for some of the artists that are um you know because some of our listeners are not just diy labels or indie labels but are also just diy artists who um who try to record their own music or or self-release their own music at least a a lot of artists and, and this is from some of my conversations a lot of artists think their success is linked to the quality of production or having a good press photo or website basically looking and sounding pro and i mean especially after you know we listen and we hear from some labels like yourself who are more established is is that the right approach for an indie artist or an indie label where should their focus be their focus should be here's the thing (laughs) every independent label is owned by essentially a crackpot an idiosyncratic crack crackpot (laughs) who who likes different things for different reasons that has no particular possibly business sense Mm. Uh, we get really professional looking demos in here and we almost immediately throw them away (laughs) Uh, whereas somebody once sent us uh, a a cd with it just had it just had written on it iowa doom metal in sharpie i listened to that one i mean (laughs) you never know i mean and but i would say we're, we're all very strange individuals. Um, do your homework. You know, if you think that a label has, that they track well with what you're doing, either not even necessarily sonically, but with the attitude, then hmm. send something along and send some links to some live performances because I have, I've been sent really nice things that people 
who I respect and have been friends with for years will be like, oh, this is a perfect fit for Bloodshot. And I'll listen to it and I go, what do you think we do? <laughs> then, then I'll be standing in the back of a room at a random show and just be like, I love this and right. I don't know why. And it, it, it is very, it is very for us and I can only speak for us. It is very organic and very visceral and, mm. uh, and totally unpredictable. Mm. Um, there are, there are things that have sat on my desk for weeks, if not months. And then I'll hear and go, I'll be like, wait, where, where's this been all my life? Oh, it's sitting <laughs> right in front of me. Maybe I'm having a bad day. I mean, it's, there's so many variables that you just got to keep plugging away and working on what you can control, which is your performance and your songwriting and, and grabbing the audience. Cause nothing is more that's true appealing to a label, to an independent label that might have more business sense than us, which is presumably most of them. <laughs> nothing is more appealing than walking into a room with a band you've never to a band you've never heard of and watching that room be full and people be into it and watch them, perform admirably right right that that is your first step in the door i mean and even if you have all that if i don't like the music then i don't care yeah and that's right it's as simple as that yeah <laughs> it's as simple and infuriating as that do you that's right it's so subjective doing a demo is is like walking not only like walking on a tightrope it's like walking on an invisible tightrope yeah <laughs> the other end is shaking so do you have a demo policy do you accept demos absolutely wow that's a beautiful thing we we have a wall of shame in our bathroom that we put up on the more unfortunate <laughs> uh, do you, uh, so you might found people through through the demos yeah absolutely yeah, really that's great to hear i love hearing that um and do you um you must get a lot. Um, we get a lot of links to things. Ah, uh, yes, that's days, right. Which is, which is good. You know, I, the, I, I don't miss the days of, you know, filling up a trash can every couple of weeks with demos. Yeah. That are full of, you know, all kinds of clutter and flyers and we've shared the stage with and, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's the classic one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, I have so much admiration uh, other little pet peeve. yeah go go on go on people should, people should avoid math problems what does that mean it means uh we're one part this plus two parts that. oh sure oh, <laughs> oh yes oh say yes yeah, say the the less is more in those pitches yeah again it's yeah it's totally random what what people like us get into there's uh rob this is there's something surreal talking to you thinking that you <laughs> You signed a band or, or or released a record that I had on a road trip 15 years ago, and I, I love that. So thank you so much for taking the time well, to chat with me. Let me just say that, uh, thank you, first of all, but we're just part of a, uh, at, at our best, at, at the moment, at those rare moments where I'm pat allowing myself to pat myself on the back. <laughs> take a modicum of, of credit or, or satisfaction of what we've, what we've done and, and not focus on my failures and <laughs> shortcomings. Um, I would like to think that we are a, a, a pretty good member of a continuum of independent music. And to your comment, we put out that Knitter's tribute record, uh, Poor Little Knitter on the Road, around uh, 1999, 2000. It had Whiskey Town on it mm. and the old 97s and and the Knitters were a band that completely floored me back in, in college when everyone mm. was listening to 
sub pop stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. and lizard and all that, I was starting to get into this, this weird country stuff. And I loved X and this side project, the knitters just absolutely changed the trajectory of, of things for me. And when we put that record out, they reformed oh. did a few shows up the East, uh, up the West coast. And I flew out to Portland to see them. And it was just such a huge thrill. And, and I said almost the same thing you just uh. said to me to Exine and John Doe. That's awesome. It's so, just, it's just circle of life. We're just part of this, this great weird thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It's been fun. Thank you everyone for listening. And thank you so much to Rob Miller for of Bloodshot Records for taking the time to chat with me for the show. It's such a huge honor, such a great label. Make sure you check them out. It's so easy to go to a record shop and find one of their records. Uh, and I encourage you to do that or hop on a playlist and, and, and go deep in their catalog. Thank you for listening. Um, again, uh, one of the things that you could do that would be really helpful to the podcast, in addition, of course, to sharing it with, with people and i know that our our listeners have done that thank you but the other thing you can do is go to itunes and leave a review um i read those they're very encouraging i think there's something uh algorithmically that that it does but uh please uh leave a review and and a rating i would love that so much go to otherrecordlabels.com to download our free guide if you are thinking about starting a record label or in the process of running a record label and you need a little bit of wisdom and guidance, um, I've put together a little package of uh, a lot of that from our, our, our interviews over the years. So go to otherrecordlabels.com to check that out. Thanks for listening.